Verse 25. While you're doing that, I'm going to need all the men here tonight to help us with some things, two things. Um, and I'll say this again later, but we're going to need all the men we can. We need to move those two picnic benches that are over against the main auditorium, the main building, over behind the building um, for, for this coming weekend. So if I can get about, we need about eight men per table, so about 16 men for that. So men, if you can help us with that, you're good at lifting and, uh, won't, and have never injured your back. We'd like to use you for that, okay? There's a little disclaimer there for that. And then the rest of the men that can, we want to get all the chairs in the back here moved over into the uh, main auditorium. Uh, if you can help us with that, that will help us get chairs over there for the, the wedding for Carl and Cindy this coming, this coming uh, uh, Saturday there. So if you guys can help us with that, that would be a blessing. Say amen if you're in the uh, passage and we just went. All right. Let's read it together. Verses 14 15. All together. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Father, thank you tonight that we're part of a living organism, the local New Testament church. We thank you, God, that the church is alive. The church is, finds its life not in man, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the promise you gave us in Matthew 16, 18, where you said upon this rock you would build your church. Thank you that the solid rock upon a local New Testament church stands upon is the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that, God, the church is the pillar and ground of truth, the church of the living God. We thank you it's called the house of prayer. We thank you it's the body, it's the body of Christ, the building of God. We thank you this evening that, God, that you said you'd never forsake your church. Thank you, dear God, that you call your church a candlestick in the midst of a dark society. And tonight we're thankful we're part of the Heritage Baptist Church. Thank you for raising this church up, God, in a darkened area, this dark, dark area of Northern California. And I pray for our light to shine even brighter. We pray for our, our lights to shine brightly like a city on a hill. We pray that God, with enthusiasm, excitement, we'd embrace the mission you've given to us in reaching people with the gospel, seeing them discipled and built up in the word. We pray tonight that God, this service, would, Lord, help us to understand where we're at in, in church and what our needs are. And God, I pray you'd speak to us. We pray for a receptive heart and teachable heart, teachable spirit. Thank you for the children that are here tonight and are being raised to learn about the church. And I pray this evening that children would love the church even more and recognize the importance of having a good testimony and praying for their church and praying for the work of God. And so we pray this evening that, Lord, there'll be some great mighty things you'll do in our lives that will give glory to Christ. Bless our service, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Is there such a thing as a perfect church? How many feel like you're in a perfect church tonight? Amen. No hands are raised. Now, Bo, thank you. Now, Bo, is, Bo feels like he's in a, in a perfect church. All the children feel like they're perfect church. What's wrong with the adults? Amen? The problem's not with the children. The problem's with us. Amen? You know? And I like to think that we, you know, that we, we in a perfect church, that we would have a perfect church. I mean, a perfect church would be a church where, where we have a 200-voice choir. A perfect church would be a church where all the seats in the pews are filled. A uh, perfect church would be a church where everything's immaculately clean. A uh, perfect church would be a place where we, we have, where, where just everything fits right and everybody's on time to church, amen? A perfect church is a place where we ask for volunteers and you, you never, you have more volunteers than you need for the need. I mean, just whatever it may be, those, those are all the things we think about for a perfect church. The truth is we don't have a perfect church. I, I read a poem that I thought I would read to you tonight that's kind of a blessing. And, and those of you, depending on translation, I got it to the translator late, so you may not be able to, to, to follow this, but listen to what it says there. It says, if you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church. You'll spoil the atmosphere. 
If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest joining it, you'd mar the masterpiece. If you should find the perfect church, then don't you ever dare to tread upon such holy ground. You'd be a misfit there. But since no perfect church exists made of imperfect men, then let's cease looking for the church and love the one we're in. Amen? Of course, it's not a perfect church. That's simple to discern. But you and I and all of us could cause the tide to turn. What fools we are to flee our post in that unfruitful search. To find at least where problems loom, God proudly builds his church. So let's keep working in our church until the resurrection. And then we each will join that church without an imperfection. Look at our passage tonight. We're looking at some qualities, if you would, some traits, I'm not going to call them qualities, some traits and characteristics that are found in churches. You know, I, 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 like to, I, I like to preach about the church. I love teaching about the church. There's so many wonderful things about it. But tonight as we look at the scriptures, we're, we're back here in 1 Thessalonians 5. And, of course, our series is entitled The Church Triumphant. And, uh, the, you know, we believe that the church at Thessalonica was a model church in many, many ways. I believe the church in Antioch was a model church in many, many ways. And, of course, the church at Jerusalem. And, but we see some things here that Paul reminds us about the realities of church and dealing with people there. And last time we were in this passage, if you look up for just a minute, you'll notice in verses 12 and 13, we looked at the responsibility of sheep and shepherd. And we looked primarily at the responsibility that the sheep have to the shepherd. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the overseer of the church of God, he talks about seeing them highly and things of that nature there. But mainly just having to understand that there needs to be the proper respect and acknowledgement in the church there. And tonight as we go down, we're now looking at the sheep a little bit further. Paul has some very, very, very strong things to say in verses 14 to 15 about different kinds of sheep. And, you know, uh, for all of us in this room that maybe some of us are one of these sheep here tonight. And, uh, you know, we're going to kind of look at it a little bit and wonder, okay, I wonder if, that, if God is speaking to me from this passage of Scripture. And, and Paul did this because there were some things happening in the church of Thessalonica. As we start off in chapter 1, it's a church that's on fire for God. They're recognized for their, their influence around the world. But as we get a little bit further in this chapter, we realize this was a needy church. This was a church where people are hurting. People were in need of comfort. People were in need of encouragement. Uh, people were in need of just some, uh, some counsel in different areas. And then he gets to verses 14 and 15. And he starts off by saying, verse 14, now we exhort you. Now, in other words, he would say, I need, to, I need to tell you some things that maybe you don't want to hear, but you need to hear. He says, I need to exhort you. And he's going to give us some, some thoughts here about five categories of people that every church has. We have it in our church. We're here, they're here tonight. I, I'm one of them. You're one of them. And so we have to realize that maybe that we may incorporate all of these, some of these, or maybe just one of these. But we have to realize that these things exist. And he gives us a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation. How do we deal with these things? How do we, how do we shepherd the flock? How do we manage people in that context there? So we can move ourselves towards what the Bible desires and being a healthy church there. So tonight, I want you to see Paul's advice in shepherding an imperfect church. Number one, I want you to go back with me for a moment, and let's look at the goal of the church. Let's look at the goal of the local New Testament church, because I think it's important that we just get ourselves back, recalibrated in this idea of what is the goal of the, of the local New Testament church. Now, again, we're looking at the church triumphant, and we covered some of these things in, in this series here. Number one, the, the goal of the local New Testament church is that it should be a compliant church, a compliant church. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Don't look at your notes. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 13 tonight, and I want us to look at the verses for just a moment. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we did last time, but look at chapter 13 and some words that Paul mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 13 concerning the local church. Three things he mentions in Hebrews 13, and it's kind of interesting as you study Hebrews, Hebrews, and we went through a study of that many uh, several years ago, 
And, uh, and it's kind of interesting. He brings up the matter of the shepherd and sheep last in all this because he had to deal with just the hearts of these believers, these Hebrew believers who were spiritually backsliding and regressing. And they had they'd attained these different stages of backsliding. And he got to the place where we got very, very serious and was trying to get them back on track. And chapter 13 is just a very encouraging chapter dealing with all, many different facets of the Christian life there. And notice in verse 7 he says this, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Then notice if we go down to verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And then later on, you'll notice in verse, let's see here, uh, he tells us here in verse uh, 24, salute all them that have the rule over you, and to all the saints, they of Italy salute you. Now the first thing we're going to look at tonight is that the goal of the church is that Jesus Christ wants an obedient church, all right? Now we go over here, John chapter 14, and we love quoting that passage, and what, what, that whatsoever shall the Father in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, that will I do. I think many of you, like myself, have invoked those verses. We've asked God, Lord, I'm praying in Jesus' name for, for this particular matter. But we somehow always leave out verse 15. And verse 15 says, if you love me, my commandments. And that's what he's talking about here. The church, a compliant church is one that is an obedient church. Look at what these verses are saying. Look at verse 7. He talks about them that have the rule over you. They're your leaders who speak to you the word of God, whose faith you're to follow. Go down to verse 17. He says, obey them that have the rule over you. Hey, listen, God, God has made the structure of his local church where he has individuals who lead the church, and as they lead the church, where to follow. Look again at verse 17. He says, obey them which have the rule over you. It's the word hupakuo, which is a very strong version of the, of the idea of submission. And he says, submit yourselves. And he says, for they watch for your souls. He's not talking about them babysitting. He's not talking about them micromanaging. But he is saying that we must, we must submit ourselves to that kind of leadership. And then notice verse 24. He says, salute them that have the rule over you. God's church is to be an obedient church, one that is compliant. But notice something else. If you go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, go with me to Ephesians 4, let's see something else. The, the, the goal of the local church is that it should be compliant. But notice, secondly, the goal of the local church is that it should be cohesive. It should be cohesive. It should, be, it, should have a it should have not just uniformity, but it must be unified. Look at some things that Paul says here, and I want to take a moment to read through portions of these scriptures, and we're going to pull it all together. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice in verse 1 he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy uh, of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness and with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. And the key phrase here, you want to notice those two words there in verse 2, one another. He's talking about a church that needs to be cohesive. It needs to have a oneness in what it does. Notice verse 3 here. Verse 3 says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Hey, listen, if there's ever a verse we need to have around our churches, is that, is that one verse right there? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the body, the, the Spirit, and the bond of peace. That's a good verse to have for our church. That's a good verse to have for our marriages. That's a good verse to have when we're serving God together and we're all different personalities. We must endeavor. We must work at keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, listen, at that time when Paul wrote that, there was only one kind of church, and that was a Baptist church. You didn't have all these other denominations, okay? Our traits, we create, trace our traits right back to here. There was only one kind of church, okay? One kind of church. It was a Baptist church. Baptist is Bible, and Bible is Baptist. 
And so we look at this here, and he talks about one Lord and one faith and one baptism. There was no confusion. Baptism was by immersion. There was no sprinkling. There was no pedo-baptism or baby-baptism. Okay? There was no baptism for the dead. He says one faith, one baptism. He says we don't have different kind of faith. One God and Father of all. And he clarified that in chapter 3. Who is above all and all, through all and in you all. And then he talks about in verse 7, this is very important. He talks about this oneness and he talks about the grace of God. Where you find this, he talks about the grace of God as, as God's means by which God disperses his gifts into the local church. Now look up here. Everyone in this church that's saved, you have a spiritual gift that God has given to you. And you have to realize that is a special gift, enablement of God to be a blessing to the local church. It is not to be used to manipulate people or to take advantage of people. Or worse yet, it is not to be kept hidden out of sight and not to be used. God wants us to emphasize the local church. Now I'm going to tell you something. When you look at the churches, that those early churches, they didn't have orchestras. They didn't have choirs. They had great, I think they had great congregational singing. Uh, they didn't have hymnals and things of that nature. They didn't have all of those things. And, uh, and, but I, I tell you one thing they did. They, 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 they emphasized very strongly the gifts of the Spirit. They worked those gifts and they worked it very, very diligently. And that's why in those early days of the church that those churches were very healthy in many, many means there. He says in verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, don't say you, have a, you don't have a spiritual gift. Verse 7 says every one of us has a spiritual gift. God's grace enabled us, and that's something that's important there. You don't have to make this complicated. I know we give spiritual gift tests out to help you discern it, but I'm always at, I'm at a point where I can look at someone just as I watch them interact and where that I can, I, I can guess very, very quickly kind of where they're at in terms of their, their spiritual gifts and, and whether they're using it or they're using it for God's glory or they're not using it. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use our natural talents, but God help us that sometimes we get to a place where we're a little bit out of balance. We put more emphasis on the natural talents than we do on the spiritual gifts. Listen, healthy churches are not healthy because of the natural talents. They're healthy because of the spiritual gifts. And by the way, they're not, they're not only healthy, but they're holy. They're set apart unto God. So we go a little bit further down. Notice what he says here. Wherefore he saith, in verse 8, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first in the lowest parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up for, uh, but far above all heaven, that he might fill all things. And notice verse 11. And he gave some, this is continuing on the same thought of the Lord giving these spiritual gifts. This is all in motion after the resurrection of Christ there. He says, uh, after his death and his resurrection, he says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now right there in verse 12, God desires that a cohesive church is building up the church. Now, you're here tonight. Thank God that you're here this evening because you want your soul fed. You're here tonight because you want to be edified. Listen, we have to look even beyond ourselves and realize there must be the edifying of the body of Christ. There must be the building up of the church. Don't come to church sitting on the sidelines looking in terms of what am I going to get out of church. We're, lately, we've been hearing this frequent thing where people say, well, uh, there's nothing here for me. I, I'm going to tell you, if the word of God is being preached, there's a lot there for you. Amen. I mean, you've got God's people and you've got God's word. You've got a lot there for you. But I hear for some that they say, well, there's nothing here for me or some other reason why. The truth of the matter is, if you, if you don't use your spiritual gift, if you're not finding your place to get involved, that's not the church's fault. That's your fault. Because you have chosen not to be involved. And God wants us to, if you read, study through Hebrews, God wants us to have more church, not less church. He says, so much to more, amen? Now, I find a, I find a problem with a lot of our Baptist churches that are retracting, and they're shutting down service, doing less. I, I read the Bible, says so we need to have more church, not less church, amen? amen. 
so much to more. We get tired of church. The problem is not we're getting tired of church. The problem is, is that we've allowed our spiritual batteries to get so drained and so low that we see church as just another event. Church is not another event. Church is our opportunity of just getting God to speak to us and work on us. That's a vital component of your spiritual life. Don't look at church as another event. And don't look at church as just I've got to do and I've got to say, hey, thank God I get to go to church. Amen. Just imagine with you, if you lived in this area and didn't have an independent Baptist church like this church, we'd be hurting very bad. He says, for the perfecting of the saints. We see churches are building up one another. They're maturing. If you look over the last, what are we, in July, last seven months, did you grow in the last seven months? Can you point to sermons you've heard, messages you've heard, and Sunday school lessons that have been taught that have touched your life and have changed you? I preached last night. I was flew out to Michigan on Monday night and uh, to be with with, with Brother Ulett's church. Brother Ulett just just uh, seated the church over to Brother Pastor J.D. Howe. Pastor Howe's been with them on staff for 15 years. Great man of God. And have Brother Howe come out here next year with his wife. They're just great soul and great people. We were at lunch yesterday and they got to talk with the, the waitress there and, and uh, found out the waitress got baptized at her church in 2013. And, but one of, their wor- and one of the workers got her to church and she got fired up to find out he was the, uh, now the new pastor of the church there. And, and uh, Mrs. Howell got up and they exchanged cell phone numbers. It was just encouraging for me to see all that transpire there. And I was just so excited about that. I was watching their members so win. One of their men, uh, uh, brother, brother Scott Collins, one of the great soul winners of our generation. Brother Collins is being used to winning many, many souls to Christ. But anyway, um, I was at their church last night and preaching, and, and our uh, preacher men just had great liberty to preach last night for their, for their midweek service. And uh, there, there were some folks later on as I was shaking hands, a lady came up to me, tears coming down her eyes. She said, Pastor Fong, I'm not going to tell you my name, but I'm just going to tell you, I needed that tonight. I'm glad I came to church. That's what our attitude should be. I'm glad I came to church. I needed that tonight. God spoke to my heart exactly what I needed there. And so look at here, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Why do we come to church? We, got, we want God to equip us and enable us. We want to sharpen our swords so we are, we are better for the work of the ministry. Hey, I'm thankful for 200 people that have signed up, indicated their desire to participate in the assembling of the John's Rome. And I'll be honest with you, it's a no-brainer project. It's a no-brainer project. I mean, you know, you're going to glue a few things, put some things together. We get to, but you know what's fantastic about it? We get to do it so that we can help a ministry get thousands of these Johns and Romans in the hands of South Korean people. And, you know, we get to have a small, very, very small part and seeing people come to Christ through that, through that avenue. That's a blessing, amen? And we get to serve God together, and we get to work together. And teenagers get to work with adults, and adults get to work with college students. And men get to work with men, and ladies get to work with ladies. And families get to sit next to each other, elbow to elbow, and, and serving Jesus Christ. To me, that is wonderful, amen? That's a wonderful thing to do. And so that's the, that's the work of the ministry. And so we have to understand, when we come to church, a cohesive church, we come with this mindset, okay? I'm going to grow. Secondly, I'm going to be sharpened in my, my work. And then he says something else here. He says, for the protecting of the saints, for the work and the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. Now listen, when you're growing and I'm growing, guess what? The whole body grows. The whole body grows. The whole body's strengthened, okay? So it's not about not j- just, you know, in your own individual world. We have just, and I think it's part of being part of the Bay Area and being very busy and this being a commuter church. The average person drives about 30 minutes to come to church and some even longer. And I think we're just, you know, we're so busy. We've got so many things going on in our lives. And, and some of you are professionals. You've got a lot going on there. I understand all that. And you've got family needs. And you try to, you have a, you have a schedule. You try to get your, your children to bed by a certain time. I understand all that. You need to get to bed by a certain time. You're trying to get a minimal amount of sleep. You realize some of you have to, like I think one of our men that he has to be, at, he gets to work at 5 in the morning. So he could just go in his cubicle before everybody comes and he has his prayer time from 5 to 6. I thought that's a blessing. He starts work at 6 o'clock. He ends off at 3. 
and he just gets back home. He gets to the gym a little bit of workouts to stay healthy there, and he tries to make sure he eats dinner before 5. He doesn't eat after 5 o'clock, Monday through Friday, and he's one of our faithful men. He's just serving God. He's a great soul winner. He's involved in help, doing a lot of things for the Lord's work, and every time I see him on Sunday, he just says, Pastor, what can I do today? What can I do for the church here? And you know, to me, when I look at things like that, that's edifying the body of Christ. The goal of the church is to be cohesive. Can't be fragmented. We can't be disjointed. We can't have these multiple ministries doing their own things. We need to be supporting one another. We need to be a compliant church. We need to be a cohesive church. But you notice First Thessalonians chapter one. Go back there, please. It needs to be a copious church, a fruitful church. Because you know when you're cohesive and you're obedient, and God's just working through that. Amen. It just comes together. And Paul said this in verse 4. He said, chapter 1, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, remember, when you find the word election, don't be scared of the word election, by the way. It's a good Bible word. It's a good Bible word. The emphasis is made by the Calvinists on the word election. I wasn't planning to say this, but I'm going to say it to you tonight. Emphasis is made by the Calvinists. That's to do with salvation. It goes beyond the matter of salvation. It deals with sanctification. He's talking to the people of God. He's talking about people whose position is already in Jesus Christ. He says here, knowing, beloved of God, your election of God. Ele so you have to ask this question, elected to what? Elected to what? And he explains that in the following verses. So always remember this, when you study your Bible, when somebody just says, you believe that, always look at the context of Scripture. I just spoke about this on Sunday morning to our Chinese-speaking department, 2 Thessalonians 2, about a, a, a verse 13 there, which the Calvinists use as one of their, 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 their catapult verses to stand upon their doctrine. Once you understand the context of that passage, you realize that the, what, what they're using as their foundation, it falls apart very quickly because there is no foundation there. And so we have to look at this passage here. He says, electing to, he says, I'm, he says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Listen, God saves you for a purpose. God doesn't save us to sit and to soak and to complain. And God doesn't save us to sit on the silent. God saves us to glorify him. Amen. And as we seek to glorify God, we do it by getting involved in serving the Lord. And listen, the greatest thing you're going to find out is propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was encouraged yesterday, one of the staff members that picked me up actually on Monday, he said, yeah, he said, preacher, he said, just want to let you know, he says, we missed Brother Lett, but he said, we haven't missed a beat. He says, Brother Howe came into the church, he's been preaching way there. And he says, you know, so, uh, the biggest complaint our church has ever had over the years is people say, well, Brother, Brother Lett, Pastor Lett always preached about so many and talked about, he'll throw something in about getting people saved and all that. And he says, and some people say, that's all you talk about. And he always asks question, well, what, what do you know that's more important than when he souls to Christ? Amen? Of course, you look at that church, it's a healthy church, a God-glorifying church, the church that had 100,000 people in the city that now has decreased to 48,000 people in the city, but they're still going on strong. So when he souls to Christ, still reaching people with the gospel, not letting that distract them, still running buses, still reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ here. And so he says in verse 5, notice, for our gospel, by the way, it's the gospel, our gospel. You've taken ownership in it. Our gospel has touched your life. Have you, have you forgotten that day you got saved? For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And Paul said, listen, we went in there determined we wanted to win you for Christ. They knew that Paul was serious about the gospel. We get to verse 6 there, and he says, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord. And I like that because a lot of people get, you know, we're, we're, we have very fragile egos. And we want people to follow us, but we kind of don't want them to follow the Lord. Let me, I like what Paul said here. You became followers of us in the right way, but you follow the Lord also. Amen. 
You became followers of us and of the Lord, have received the word in much affliction. Listen, when they got the word of God, they were being persecuted. You be thankful tonight, you're not being persecuted for getting the word of God, amen. You can go home and you're not going to be persecuted, but they got persecuted. And he said they received the joy of the Holy Ghost. In verse 7, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia, Achaia. Listen, that's that whole area we call Greece now, the Aegean Sea area. Man, you think about there, Macedonia, Achaia, I mean, they just stretched out there. I mean, God knew what he was doing when he, when he led Paul in that area there of Macedonia. And it was a critical component of get the spread of the gospel, said so it would go west. And he said, you became examples to all that were Macedonia, Achaia. Now, that's, that, that, that's astounding. That's copiousness. He's not commending the church at Philippi for that testimony. He's commending the church at Thessalonica for that testimony. He's commanding them that they receive the gospel in much affliction and they followed the pattern of the apostle Paul. I think they knew something about Hebrews 13, 7. Follow them that have the rule over you, whose faith follow. He, they, they followed that and they went out and they started spreading the gospel. I don't think they were a big church in the beginning, but they were an on-fire church. They took the gospel and they spread it out wherever they could. And Paul described this. He says, I got word back. Your, your, your example has touched all of Macedonia. Hey, listen, brethren, you say, what's the vision for our church? Let's touch all of the Bay Area of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's touch this entire, the peninsula area. Let's touch this area. Don't tell me it can't be done. It's being done. Let's keep it going. Amen. And so he says here, so you became examples of all of them that heard the gospel uh, have, uh, of us and of the Lord. Have received the word in much affliction. Then verse 8, for from you sounded out. And I like what the word sounded out means. It means it echoed. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only Macedonia, Canaan, but also in every place your faith that God were spread abroad. That is a fruit-bearing church. How do we be fruit-bearing? Well, you read the Gospels and you realize we need to be Fruitful with godly practices. Hey, the word of God is a mirror. When I get up in the morning, I don't like what I see in the mirror. Amen? I say, who are you? <laughs> I don't like what I see in the mirror. A lot of times you look in the mirror, and if you look very close at some things, you just say, well. When we look at the mirror of God's word, it tells us what we are. It's pretty scary. Amen? It's pretty scary. It's a reflection of what you are. God sends the truth. That's what he tells us. We need to receive the word with meekness. One translator uses the word welcome for the word received. He says, welcome the word of God. Receive it with meekness. There's room for improvement. There's room for change. But it's fruitful not only in its godly practices, it's fruitful in its influence of the gospel. Brethren, we're trying to find every way we can to influence our world with the gospel. So number one, we see the goal of the local church. Would you notice, go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. We need to get the crux of our message here tonight. I said all that to lead up to the deck number two, which is really the key point this evening. It's really almost a two-point message. You see the goal of the local church. Would you notice, secondly, the governance of the local church? Now, Paul, if you didn't, you weren't here two weeks ago when I uh, explained and preached from verses 12 and 13, or thir 12 and 13. Please go back on the podcast and listen to that. It'll give you good context on that. Paul's talking to the church. 
he's telling them, listen, you need to recognize your pastor. He says, you need to encourage him. He speaks about, you know, he's over you in the Lord in verse 12. He admonishes you. He says in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. But then he speaks in verses 14 and 15. He's talking about pastoral and corporate responsibility. Now, corporate responsibility means everybody here in the church. Put your seatbelts on because he's going to describe our five characteristics. A man by the name of Patrick Lencioni wrote a book entitled The Five Dysfunctions of an Organization. And I will tell you tonight we're going to see five aspects of a local church, five personality traits and characteristics that make us dysfunctional. One of the reasons why we're imperfect. One of the reasons why we need God. One of the reasons why we need to be in church, amen? One of the reasons why we need to hear what we're going to hear tonight, because this is a section of Scripture that often is not preached enough that needs to be preached more often so we understand who we are and what we're all about. And so I want you to notice these characteristics found in verses 14 and 15. It starts off by saying, now we exhort you. We exhort you. In church tonight, I exhort you. He's not talking to the lost. He's talking to the saved. He's not talking to somebody who's dropped out of the church. He's talking about somebody in the church. We exhort you, brethren. This was an open assembly where this letter was being read and then preached to. So now we exhort you, brethren. Number one, would you write this down? He says we're to warn the wayward. Warn the wayward. Warn them that are unruly. What does that mean, pastor? It means they don't follow the rules. Now I'm going to, so we look at these, these five characteristics, and I'm going to try to explain it to you in the context of what Paul wants us to understand. And then I'm going to tell you what his counsel was, okay? Now unruly in the Bible was a military word. It spoke about someone in the military who was, could not keep rank, who was a soldier, could not keep rank. See Pastor A.J. about that. He was junior Marines. And, uh, you know, his discipline he got was because he had to follow rank. Amen, you know. If you're not in rank, that's not a good thing with your superiors. And he's talking about soldiers there who were guilty of disorderly conduct. We would say in secular terms they were insubordinate. They couldn't submit. They disobeyed orders. When they were given orders, they did it a different way. And did you know sometimes it's not about sometimes doing the order the way you're supposed to do it just because you're supposed to do it. It's to test to see can you follow the rules. Amen. And they said that an unruly person was out of step, wouldn't do his duty, wouldn't follow through. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 because we're going to look at it a little bit further when we're in that, when that chapter. 2 Thessalonians 3, would you go there please? And he used the same word again three times in chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. And he translates it, the word disorderly. Same idea, same word, same meaning. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is pretty strong now, and I'm not going to get on that tonight. That you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. That's personal separation. And not after the tradition which he received of us. He changed his doctrine. He's lowered his standards. Then he goes on in verse 7. 
For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, <coughs> but we have not ourselves disorderly among you. Verse 11, for we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now watch this. Some have said that even this word unruly are those who are loafers. They hang out. They like to sit around and talk about the latest fad and the latest trends. Like I told a Bible college I preached at this past semester, follow the truth, don't follow the trends. Amen? Follow the truth, don't follow the trends. Fads fade out. The fashion of this world passes away, the Bible says. Amen? So it's talking about somebody who doesn't do his duty mainly because out of apathy. Uh, he doesn't follow his duty because out of rebellion. Could be one of the two. And so he's out of sync. He's not with the program. She's not with the program. I, uh, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to tell you this. This is how you know you're out of program. We're doing a, in a ministry, doing one of our ministries there a while back. And I found that one of our members didn't like our gospel track, so they went ahead and made up their own gospel track. You're out of order. You're out of order. You're out of order. You need to go back and look at your church covenant. You're out of order. You need to read your Bible. There is nothing different between the gospel message between both tracks. They just wanted their own personalized track. They didn't like how we did ours. I'm sorry. You know, if we did everything to our own opinion there, our church would be a mess. The little children had their ideas. We'd have all these different colors on the walls. Amen? They'd think it'd be okay to keep the floors dirty. And he's saying here, this is somebody that, that wants to do their own thing. They're always in the way of progress. They're, he calls them disorderly. They're at odds with everything. They're not supportive. Here's what one, one commentator said. He said, maybe they're not doing their duty because they're angry, rebellious, and contentious. They're not a part of what's going on. They're like one man said, they're like bench warmers. You know how bench warmers are? They don't mind sitting on the bench, but if they don't get to play, after a while they think they think that they're a little bit better than some of the players that are on the court. And so as a bench warmer, they start becoming critical. They're not the one playing. They're not making mistakes. But when somebody else makes a mistake, it's easy to criticize. Hey, listen, it's easy for me to watch a Golden State Warriors lose and criticize Steph Curry for missing a shot. But I wasn't Steph Curry, amen. I didn't have the pressure. Bench warmers can be very critical about things, but bench warmers happen to be the ones who produce the least. And so I'm saying tonight, he says, warn the unruly. What's he saying there? He's saying here, warn them. Look at Acts 20, 31. Acts 20, 31. Therefore watch, remember, by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now the word, the word warn is also a word admonish. You find them used interchangeably in the New Testament. It means admonish. It means a, it means a very strong warning. It means cry aloud, sound the trumpet. In other words, you don't like preaching, you don't like being warned. It's telling the war, the warning means to tell the unruly, stop it. You're out of line. Get back in line. You're out of sync. 1 Corinthians 4.14, this is what Paul said. Now, I might be starting a series on 1 Corinthians here. He said, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Now, I like how he said that. To warn you. You're on a bad path. 
This idea of somebody who's walking a, a, a mountainside trail not realize there's poison oak on the side. If you get any further, you get in contact with that, you're going to be in bad shape. Amen? Warren means that they really must repent or step down before he has any influence. And yet Paul tells us as we do so, because some of us are, some of our personalities are very direct. And he tells us in 2 Thessalonians 3, and we'll get into this a little bit later when we get in that, in that chapter, he says, he says, but admonish them as a brother. Don't go to them to kick them out of the church. That's wrong. You go to them to warn them as a brother. Man, if you're, you know, if you're, it's kind of like the CHP. They pull you aside and you say, yes, sir, can I help you? Well, what, what, what did I do wrong? They said your, your light was out. You needed to fix your light. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Okay. You've got smoke coming out the back there and you don't know what's going on. They see that. They, it's, it's a good warning. It's a right of warning. And sometimes God warns us through friends. A lot of times God warns us to preach. Look at Colossians 1.28. This is Paul told the church at Colossae. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Number one, he said we need to warn the wayward. Number two, would you re- are you ready for this? Number two, we need to comfort the worried. Circle the word feeble-minded. He's not talking about their minds being weak. He's not talking about that. He's talking about their soul. The Greek word literally, literally means this, someone who has little soul, little faith, little trust. They're overly conservative about everything. They don't want to rock the boat. Comfort the feeble-minded. They're worried. They're anxious. They're anxious all the time. They're fearful. They have a hard time trusting God. They get worried. When bad news comes, they fall apart. They're, they're a basket of nerves, okay? These are people in the church who have no courage. They, 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 will, they, 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 they say, well, we've never done it that way before, and I don't think we should do it again. They have little faith. They have no sense of adventure. They don't want any risk. They fear the unknown. They worry about everything. They don't like change. They embrace tradition even to the place where they, they revere the tradition like the Pharisees did. They always want to do it the same way. They fear the unknown. They worry about everything. They, they find, they find uh, like they did back in the 50s, they find a communist behind every bush, amen? They lack courage. They love what is safe. They want to walk in a path that somebody's paved. Hey, listen, brethren, I'll tell you tonight, okay, I, I realize our church, our church makeup is a, very, is a little bit shy and a little bit timid, and I appreciate that. I'm thankful for that. And I, I think sometimes we're a, little bit, we're a little bit fearful. Look up here. I think we, we're a little fearful to embrace trying something new. And, and you know what? I'm going to tell you something tonight. If we try something new and it doesn't work, at least we tried. Amen? Versus being stuck and not doing anything, okay? If it didn't work, let's try something else. But listen, we ought to just try to be a little bit innovative, a little bit creative. Hey, I mean, listen, who, I, I'll tell you what, I, I guarantee a lot of people in Mark chapter 2 probably got upset with the four men that uncovered that roof and dropped that guy down from the roof. But he tr- they tried. And you know what Judge Jesus commanded them for? Their faith. Their faith. He didn't commend them for being strong. He didn't commend them for being stretcher bears. He commended them for their faith. Now, mind you tonight, as we, we look at this matter being feeble-minded, this is someone that doesn't have boldness. They don't like vision. They're like, wait, you've got to pull them along. I mean, the, the Bible says comfort the feeble-minded. They're worried and anxious all the time. And so, you know, as we preach away, and, we, and I believe we have to have fiery preaching in our pulpit, but every now and then we have to pull aside and have to remind people, hey, you can just trust Jesus and he'll help you, amen? 
cast your burden upon him. By the time you believe tonight, when you cast your burden upon him, he'll sustain you. Amen? And so Paul's counsel was, he says, encourage them. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. But we are gentle among you, even as a nurse cheereth her children. He's talking about a nursing mother that holds her child to her chest. You know what he's saying there? Sometimes in our encouragement, we have to be like a nursing mother. Someone's of little soul, someone has little faith. We have to realize today that we, we've got to be, we've got to have a little bit of patience. We have to realize that maybe they don't understand it. They need more explanation. They need more time. And we have to just kind of pull them up close to us. Hey, Paul, Jesus did that. We, you read from John chapter 12 to John chapter 70. That's what he was doing with the disciples. He's pulling them up close to him. He says, guys, you've got to understand where I'm coming from. And so number one, we need to warn the wayward. Number two, we need to comfort the feeble-minded. Number three, notice we need to support the weak. Now, the word weak is a very good word in the Bible because we need to study that. Those weak in the faith, you have to read 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 and Romans 14 to understand those weak in the faith. They stumble often. Some of you have been saved a lot and you little things make you stumble. You're weak in the faith. And he talked about in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, about foods offered to idols. There's nothing evil in the food. He says some of those with, with some of those who are weak in the faith, they said, well, we shouldn't be eating food offered to the idols. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to contaminate us or something. He says, there's nothing wrong with the food. But he tells us, he says, listen, if that brother who's weak in the faith feels that way, don't be a stumbling block to that brother. Listen tonight. Listen. People watch what we do. If you do dumb things, you can be a stumbling block to the faith. You be cri- if you're critical around a new Christian, you've just caused them to be, stu- to be a stumbling block to your faith. If you're not supportive of the work of God and the vision and trying to do what we're supposed to do, you're being a stumbling block to the work of God. You're a stumbling block to their faith. God's going to hold you accountable for being a stumbling block to their faith. So he tells us here, support the weak. I want you to notice something else with me. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, please. It's not in your notes. You need to turn there. Amen. It's the same concept here. Weak Christians are weak in their disciplines. They're weak in their doctrine. They're weak in their conviction. And they, sometimes they embarrass themselves. And listen, sometimes they embarrass the Lord. And sometimes they embarrass the church. They don't mean to. But the Bible tells we have to understand, weak Christians do some, they do some things that just kind of perplex us a little bit there. They need a lot of attention. Sometimes a weak Christian could be a very high-maintenance Christian. How many understand what I mean, high-maintenance? Amen. But notice 1, Corinthians, 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul is, Paul is doing a, 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 dealing with this matter of submission. Submission to government, submission to your employer, submission to one another. And then in chapter 3, he deals with the matter of marriage because these scattered believers were having challenges just like everybody in church has challenges with your marriage. You don't have a perfect marriage just like we don't have a perfect church. And sometimes we can go to a wedding and pastor gets up and he's giving me some encouragement, exhorting us about that. And, and, I, and I watch it there because I see, I see the eyes of the women tear up a little bit. And I'm not going to say this is what they're thinking, guys, but I think sometimes our wives think this. That's what you're saying, preacher. I thought that's what I'm married to. 
And guys, I want to talk to you for a little bit tonight because, you know, sometimes we just wait to couples retreats and couples conferences before we get on marriage. I want to tell you tonight that I think we need more preaching on marriages these days in our church. Because the whole concept that society portrays marriage has got, has got it all mixed up and upside down. Guys, we're impatient. Guys, we're stubborn. Guys, we're not willing to admit our sins. Look up here, man. If you're a man, look up here. We don't want to admit our sins. We don't want to admit we're wrong. We're too big for that. That's pride. And Peter here is writing 1 Peter 3 about a weak believer. He's talking about these wives, and some of them were bossy wives. They were out of whack. But he's talking about a wife that really wanted her husband to live for God. Now, guys, listen to me. If you're having struggles, your wife wants you to live for you, thank God you've got a wife that wants you to live for God. Because I, I have, we have some godly ladies in our church who have unsaved husbands. They would sure just like to see their husband get saved. Amen? But in 1 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2, he's talking about uh, wives that, that were just, basically, they were preaching their husbands to death. I think some ladies, they have more preaching than some men. That's fine. But you're not to usurp authority over your man or over your pastor. God has a Bible order. And so you notice he says in verse 1, Likewise, you wives, being submit, submission to your, subjection to your own husbands. Now, that's, that he's, now he's helping so your marriage doesn't get out of whack there. Because if you don't submit to your husband, listen, ladies, ladies, God, God wired you. God wired you to following one man. To submit to one man. That doesn't mean you don't submit to your pastor. I don't mean to be rebellious, okay? But he's saying there you're to, in terms of just your closest, the closest relationship you have is to your husband. And he says, if any, if any here, he says, he's talking about wives who are saved. You, you wives being subject to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the, without the word be won by the conversation. Now, here's what he's emphasizing here. He's saying this, okay, look it. If any obey not the word, now that could be an unsaved husband. But that can also be a saved husband because he's writing to the brethren. He's talking about husbands that are disobedient. He says, how are you going to win him? How are you going to influence him? How are you going to change him? He said, he's going to be won by by your heart. And he describes here the heart of the wife and how to build that heart up. And, you know, and by the way, man, that doesn't mean you and I need to neglect it. Look, look at some things he says there. He talks about the conduct or the conversation of wife. And he says in verse 2, chase conversation coupled with fear. And his adorning, he said, not to be, that don't work on the outward side, but work on the inward. Let it be the inner man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Did you see that? Did you see that? A meek and a quiet spirit. He says the ornament of a, the decoration, the attire, the apparel of a meek and quiet spirit, which is the sight of God of great praise. Hey, remember the story there about Esther? She said, hey, if I go to the king, he hasn't called me as president for 30 days. And there's a rule we have here in Persia. If the king hasn't called you as president, if you show up, then he could put you to death. You just don't show up at his door. And so the day came, she said, she said, okay, Mordecai, she told the Jews, she said, listen, here's what you guys do. He said, she said, you go get all the Jews together, and you fast and pray for me for three days, and I'll fast and pray for three days, and I'll, I'll get all the ladies to fast and pray for three days with me, and then I'm going to go. And she says, if I perish, I perish. I'm not sure how it's going to turn out, but I said, we need, I need three days to get my life ready. 
Remember what she did? Then that third day, the Bible says she put on the royal apparel. He took one look. He said, that's my queen. Guys, ladies, married people. We got a couple getting, we had four couples getting married this year. You better listen. You better take some notes here. I'm watching you. You want your, you want your man to say, that's my queen. Not because of what she's wearing here, because of what's in here. What's in here? Meek and quiet spirit. Now that doesn't mean, guys, that doesn't mean you abuse her. And that doesn't mean you go, my way is the highway. That's not what the Bible's saying there. It's just saying that there's something persuasive about a, a, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit that out of a good chaste conversation that is transformational. Then he goes down to verse 7. He talks about this weak believer. Look at verse 7. Likewise, you husbands dwell with them, live with them according to knowledge. Did you notice the next phrase? Giving what? Giving grief? Giving grief? Giving honor. Every man should have that underline in your Bible. Unto who? Give me honor to myself. To who? Speak to me. Or you want going home tonight. Give me honor to the wife. And so unto what? What kind of vessel is she? What kind of container is she? Fragile. Go read my God morning devotion. Fragile Christians. Give you honor to the wife. It's a weaker vessel. Let me read that. Let me give you a diagnosis. Listen to it now. Look at the verse when I read it. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, live with them, cohabitate with them, enjoy going home, dwell with them according to knowledge. What that, does that mean there? Okay, You're not supposed to study Somebody else's marriage that you think is doing fine, you need to study your marriage. You get a Ph.D. about your marriage, not a Ph.D. in somebody else's marriage. Amen? Dwell with them according to knowledge. Okay? If your wife came out of a rough background, then you need special grace to know how to deal with that. If your wife came out of a wonderful background, you need special grace to know how to adapt to that. Amen? Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. You know what God's telling you guys, parents, men, men, you listen to me tonight? God's telling us if we're not doing that, we've sinned against God and we've sinned against our wives. That's what he's saying there. There's no place, there's no place in a Christian home giving dishonor to the weaker vessel. God wrote this. And listen, we're going to stand before God. We're not doing right there, guys. Then you look at the end part of verse 7. No wonder our prayers are hindered. And so to the weaker vessel. And so Paul said here, he says, support the weak. Okay, they need more attention. They're high maintenance. They're, they're people that find it difficult to do God's will. They, they, they fall into the same things over and over. And some weak Christians, I'm not talking about wives now, some weak Christians, they keep falling into the same sins over and over again. They're high maintenance. Again? Man, I just got you out of that before. Again? What's wrong with you, you know? That, that's the kind of Christian your, your first thought is, what's wrong with you, you know? And he tells us, you have to support the weak. 
Now, what does he mean there? Look at twofold here. Would you notice this? Go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. It's in your notes, but I want you to turn to James chapter 5. Quickly, we've got to get through this tonight. Here's Paul's counsel. Notice verses 14 and 15. Paul's counsel, number one, write this down. Hold them up. Hold them up. Support the weak. Hold them up. He says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Now, I'm not going to get into this because I may start teaching through James a little bit here too. But I'm going to tell you this. I don't believe he's just talking about physical sickness here. Because you study the context, he's talking about backsliding Christians. Look at the last two verses there. Spiritual sickness. And I'm not against anything he's talking about here. But when you put in the context of what, what he's dealing with in this church, because remember, there were a lot of dysfunctions in this church. He's dealing with spiritual sickness. Any sick among you? He said, let me call for the pastors of the church and let them pray over him. He's saying, listen, first thing you do, people that are weak, they need the man of God to come and pray over them. And when you're weak, you need the man of God to come pray over you and for you and with you. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And he says the prayer of faith shall save him. He's not talking about salvation there. Do you understand that? He's not talking about salvation. He's trying to keep him from a multitude of sins. That's what he's talking about there. And so you look at here, and this is, again, the, 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 the bad interpretation. Some think they read verse 16, says, oh, then that means we need to go to church and confess our faults one to another. That's not what he's talking about there. He's not talking about open confession in church about your faults. Keep your dirty rags to yourself. Don't bring them to church. Amen. He's talking about this context where they're spiritually sick and they're wrong, and the elders are with them. And the elders have given signification that, the, that this person is in need of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he symbolizes that by putting the oil, the oil on his head and saying, well, we need, you need the Holy Spirit to come alongside of you as a comforter. And you need the Holy Spirit's power, and he's symbolizing that there. And he says, while you're at this, he says, confess your faults one to another. He says, they're, they're, and what's the faults there? Well, all the context of James is dealing with brethren that are in conflict with each other. Is it not? You have wars amongst yourselves. Did he not say that? The sins of the tongue, all those things. He says you need to confess your faults. Hey, this is what he's telling you tonight. You're going to confess your faults. If you've been critical, you've been gossiping, you've been hurting other people with your mouth, you're running things down, you're tearing things up, you're having fightings and wars among you, you need to confess your sins one to another. That's what he's saying there. That's supporting the weak. So he says you need to call for the pastors to come. They need to lift you up and encourage you. And you need, you need to commit yourself to prayer. And he says and pray one for another. And what kind of praying is he talking about? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. That's what he's talking about there. Now, we like to claim that in terms of the power of prayer, but the reality of it is he's talking about praying for the body of Christ. Because he says the body of Christ is fractured, the body of Christ is broken. We need to pray for the body of Christ. He says the effectual firm of a righteous man available. We need to pray for the body of Christ to be cohesive and to be compliant and to be fruitful and abounding in Jesus Christ. Hold them up. Don't walk away from hold them up. And then notice God's part. He tells us this, and he tells us in Galatians 6.1. Go to Galatians chapter 6 very, very quickly. He says, hold them up. And he says, hold them up. And secondly, bear their burden. And he says in Galatians 6, here's, here, and this, some of us who don't have a strong gift of mercy, we need this tonight. Amen? You know? He's saying chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, 
Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law. Now, to understand verse 1, go back to verse 2. We're to bear one another's burdens. Now, I'm going to tell you two things tonight. You need to think about this this evening and let the Holy Spirit convict you. What is his fault? What is his sin? Just the unruly brother. And the restoration there has the same idea that it has of a broken bone. A limb that's broken. Set it in a cast. Restore it. Let it heal. Let it become holy. Hey, the, the bone's broken. It's just hanging there. You've got a compound fracture. He says, you need to set in a cast. You need to put a pin in it. You need to fix it. Poor Sherry Ta hurt her ankle. She fractured her ankle. She's got a pin in it. But that's to make it whole so it will be back together. And once she gets finished through rehab and does all that well, she'll be back functional again. Notice here, he says, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Now, here's what he's saying. Number one, number one, if you're weak, you're weak. They're not going to necessarily, those who are spiritual may not necessarily, if they know about you and, and, and if they know about you, then they're going to go to you. But if they don't know about your situation, you need to recognize that weakness in your life and go to that spiritual person. Go to your pastor and say, Pastor, I've got a problem here. Can you help me? I need to get restored. Because if you don't, you're not help, help, letting me help you bear your burden with you. Did you hear what I, hear what I said? Pastors are not confessional boxes, nor does any independent Baptist pastor want to be a confessional box. But an independent Baptist, independent Baptist pastor wants to restore such one who's overtaken in a fault. You don't have the joy. You're not where you used to be. You're in a fault. You've got a broken bone. You've got a broken home. You've got a broken marriage. You've got a broken life. You've got you broken service. I mean, you've got broken fellowship with God. You need to get it fixed. But number four, very quickly, be patient to the wearisome. Just be patient towards all men. 30 years ago, I couldn't have been a pastor. I wasn't patient towards all men. If I had to be accused of something I don't do very good, I'd probably extend too much grace. Wearisome those who frustrate you, who drag their feet and everything. They're in line, but they're way behind. You're going 60 miles an hour. You're just thankful they can go one mile an hour, amen? They never catch up. You keep teaching them, you keep training them, you keep discipling them, you keep pouring your heart into them, and then they disappoint you. They get distracted. They can't focus. They exasperate you and exasperate the work of God. They're way lagging, way behind. He says, be patient towards all men, the wearisome. And Paul just says this, he said, what's his counsel? You've got to stay with them. Have your patience. Macrothumos. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient with your children, parents. They're not like where you're at. Yeah, they'd all goofy and do stuff like that. You know what? They're just kids. They're just kids. And we're so busy. We got so many pressures. We want them to grow up. They're not going to grow up like that. Be patient with them. They'll come around. Everyone wants to think, listen, everyone wants to think your kid's going to turn out right. What if your kid doesn't turn out right? Is that they, They're still your child. Amen. You still need to love them. You still love them. You still keep them on the right path. They need to know you're always there for them. i got a number of pastor friends right now. Just They're grieving over the fact that they've got a son that entered the ministry who's not going the same direction as the father. 
But I'm thankful for those men that I know. They love their sons. They haven't forsaken them. They haven't abandoned them. They're still trying to love them. They're not supporting what their sons are doing. And I said the same thing tonight. That please don't throw your children under the bus. Amen. And don't worry about somebody else's children. Worry about your children. Because the same, when we start getting critical about somebody else's children, it's not long before it happens to our children. Be patient. Stay with them. Then notice number five. Resist the wicked. Would you notice verse five? Would you notice that last verse here, verse 15? See that none, notice these next words, evil for evil. Now I challenge you Bible students tonight. Go study the word evil, the word Greek word kakos. Kakos. That's wicked. And listen to me tonight. Who are the wicked? They do evil. Look up here, Christian. Christians do evil too. Christians do evil too. They commit sins against other Christians right in the church. They put on a great face at church, but things are not like that at home. They break up marriages, they defile daughters, they provoke their sons to wrath. They steal, they gossip, they slander, they falsely accuse. They know what the doctrine that's preached in the church, but they tolerate bad doctrine. They lie, they manipulate, they like being drama queens. They're like what Paul talked about in Acts chapter 20. They speak perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. They're evil, they're evil. They hurt others in the church. They hurt their pastor. They hurt their spouse. They hurt their children. They hurt other members. They're, they're wicked. And Paul said this. They, uh, we, 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 don't, you know, we don't know what the sin was that got in their life that he's talking about here where, they, where, where, where that sin pulled them away from their, their closest to Jesus. But there were some, as you read the context here, they were, they were filled with evil. They were filled with this desire of retaliation, of revenge, getting even, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And Paul said this very strongly, see that none render evil for evil. He's dealing with evil in the church. And there were a lot of good things in that church at, at Thessalonica, but I'm going to tell you, they were an imperfect church, just like Heritage Baptist Church is an imperfect church. There was evil there. He says, and so here's his counsel. Did you notice verse 15? Follow that which is good. You know what? That's not hard, is it? It's not hard. Both among yourselves. Oh, man. You know what he's saying there? There were some Christians. We'll see this in 2 Thessalonians 2. There were some Christians doing evil to the unsaved. That's wrong. Some of them were taking advantage of their unsaved parents. Some of them were taking advantage of their, their siblings. See, and then render evil for evil. So what's he saying there? Well, we're going to follow that, which is good. Write this down, okay? Stop all retaliation and revenge. Look at Romans chapter 12 very quickly. Be of the same mind one towards another. There's that phrase again, one another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. By the way, did you know the context there is talking about now that you know what your spiritual gift is, how to live the Christian life? 
And as you know, you have a spiritual gift. Part of God's will for your life is to use your spiritual gift in the local New Testament church to build up the church and to be a blessing to other people. So he says, mind not hide things, condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceit. You don't know everything that you think you know. Recompense no man notices evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth you, live peaceably with all men. That's what he said in Thessalonians in, in verse 13 of chapter 5. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather, give place un, but rather give place unto wrath. You know what he's saying there? He says, don't let wrath get control of you. Be careful. You've got an anger problem when there's wrath. In fact, you're past an anger problem. You're past that. You're, you're almost on the verge of being criminal if you're not careful. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt leave coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil. Overcome evil with good. But notice God's part, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. He said, but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, God is talking about little ones and little children. They're weak. They're weak. He said, if you offend them, if you hurt them, God's saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in. It's better for you that a heavy millstone be around your neck and you were cast to the ocean. Because he says here, woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. Now listen, look up here tonight. Hey, hey. You're going to get offended. If you haven't figured that out, you're going to get offended. I'm going to offend you. You're going to offend me. But man up. Don't let that offend you, okay? Go on and be, be happy in Jesus. Amen? You say, what are you going to offend it about? That's pride. Thank you for caring enough to tell me about it. Amen? So he says here, look what he says here. Woe to the world because of offenses, where it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom that offense comes. Now, if you're the one bringing the offense, look out. God says, woe to you. If you know your Bible, woe is not very good. If God calls woe on you, that's, not very, that's, a, that's, a, that's a word of judgment. You're hurting somebody else. You're taking advantage of somebody's weak. Hey, listen, God's sizing you up, buddy. God's sizing you up. He's got his payday coming. He talks about the governance of the church. He talks about the goals of the church as we close. Notice Ephesians chapter 3. Notice the glory of the church. In Ephesians 3, verses 20 21, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power of the work within us. Did you know the context of verse 20? I love preaching that verse. The context in verse 20 is not about you and me asking and thinking. The context is about who God is. Amen? He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. The context is how great God is. See, here's the problem. Great God. Hey, look up here. Great God. Great Christian life. Little God. Little Christian life. So now Paul shifts that because leading into verse 20, he's talking about the wonderful love of Jesus Christ. Hey, you can never go wrong talking about the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. And in verse 21, he says this. Unto him. Who's him? Jesus. Amen. Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without any. He says, forever and forever and forever, let God be glorified. Give him the glory. Exalt his name. That, that's, a, that's a revived church when God gets the glory in all things. So we're dealing tonight, the governance of the church. 
We help one another. Sometimes the pastor has to be direct and has to help you. You realize tonight, an imperfect church reminds us we have a perfect God. He fixes the body better than we know how. But we can be worried, wayward, worrisome, weak, or even wicked. But there's hope. Amen? He's able to do exceeding abundantly. Listen, he can fix it. He can fix it. He can make it right. He can help us. This is poem, and I'm done tonight. Think gently of the erring. You know not of the power with which the dark temptation came in some unguarded hour. You may not know how earnestly they struggled or how well until the hour of weakness came, and sadly thus they fell. Think gently of the erring. Oh, do not now forget. Whoever darkly stained by sin, he is your brother yet. Heir of the selfsame heritage, child of the selfsame God, he has but stumbled in the path which you in weakness trod. Speak gently to the erring. You yet may lead them back with holy words and tones of love from misery's thorny rack. Forget not you have sometimes sinned and sinful yet may be. Deal gently with the erring then as God has dealt with thee. Now, in a moment here, I'm not going to tell you to do the invitation. Did you hear what I just said? I'm not going to tell you to do the invitation, but I'm going to tell you to do the right thing. There's a window right now the next 60 seconds. You're either going to obey the voice of the Holy Spirit and make some things right, or you're going to go out the same way you came in with the same problems. We're going to see how that quenches the Holy Spirit as we continue our series. Despise not prophecies. Tonight we have a window of opportunity. The pianist is going to play. I'm going to ask you to stand when you hear the piano play. But I want you to do the right thing. Don't do it for preacher. Don't do it for, do it for God. Do it for your own soul. Do it for your own soul. Father, tonight.